Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity. I'm Ellie Stuhler. For the London Design Festival, the pod that usually lives at White City Place is going on tour. For two days, we're recording from the Brompton Design District and from Exhibition Road outside the Victoria and Albert Museum. Today, we're on Exhibition Road outside the V&A, and producer David Michon is hosting. Technology plays an increasingly important role in our lives, from simple communication to the way governments deliver critical services. When this applies to urbanism, we often speak of smart cities, but it's a term that has a very nebulous definition and a movement that garners very mixed reaction. How much should we bend our behaviors to the abilities of new technologies, or vice versa? What's the relationship between technology, the design of spaces, and the conditioning of our behavior? In the pod are two people who spend their time pondering those questions and asking new ones about smart cities. Uh, my name's Rory Hyde. I'm the curator of contemporary architecture and urbanism at the V&A. Uh, I'm Abhay Adhikari, and uh, I have my own company, and I work with a lot of buzzwords. A lot of people never know what I do, so my job title is Digital Insert Buzzword here. Let's stick with that. Rory is a designer, curator, and author focused on new forms of design practice for the public good and redefining the role of the designer today. He is currently curator of contemporary architecture and urbanism at the Victoria and Albert Museum and a design advocate for the mayor of London. His forthcoming book is titled How to Make the Next City. Abe is the founder of Digital Identities, running workshops in 12 countries with participants ranging from museum professionals to executives at some of the world's most known multinationals, such as BMW and Coca-Cola. He also leads the Urban Sustainable Lab, named by the Observer newspaper as one of the UK's top 50 new radical projects. Okay, I just gave a short talk on the subject of smart cities. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a bit of a moan. I was grumpy about a lot of things, but I don't want to leave uh, people with a sense of depression and doom and gloom. So I was just talking about some of the ideas that excite me and the potential for how we can take charge of how smart cities can be a, uh, a place which is very inclusive and open and not just about technology. That mm. was what my mm. talk was about. Uh, and, um, yeah, what's the sort of typical version of what a smart city is to you? I mean, f- for me, it's uh, it's something which is, um, you know, all connected, all coordinated, all sort of, uh, you know, organized from the top down and, and that actually people become these little cogs which sort of fulfill these, uh, these bigger ambitions which may not be... Uh, transparent to them. Is that more or less sum it up for you? Sadly, that's the prevailing definition of what a smart city is. And and that's what I was talking about, that, you know, um, uh, all the decision makers, whether you have them in the private sector or the public sector, they're still infatuated by terms like data and dashboards. And they take those terms and they sort of make a very simple equation, data plus dashboard equals to a solution for, let's say, mobility or Mm. climate change. And in doing this, they're sort of forgetting that our cities are made up of lots of different kinds of people. They're really messy, they're really complicated, and there seems to be no room for that. So what I've been trying to do, if I can talk about my work as well, is bring in that human element, go to that uh, uh, man or woman in a boardroom 
who's attached to the business case and wants that damn dashboard and say, hold on a minute, <laughs> it's not about us versus them. Let's bring in people into this conversation. And the dashboards, I mean, what I have in my in mind is a sort of, um, you know, situation room in the mayor's office with big uh, digital screens above showing the movement of people and of all the trains and um, emergency services and ambulances and so on. Um, and that somehow with a, you know, swoosh of the hand or a turn of a knob, you can mobilize these, um, you know, energy or, or it could be, you know, LED lighting, which can um, you know be used in a situation and so on, uh, but uh, and and um, I can imagine that's very attractive to a to a mayor who wants uh, control and power and that, and that sort of sense of having an overview that it's all within my grasp. So I think it's that uh, infatuation around control that people buy into, they buy into that narrative. I'm not an anti-dashboard person, and let's not make this about dashboards, <laughs> but the scenario that you've described where you have adequate technology, adequate training and support, yes, dashboards can work. But in reality, I'm giving an extreme example, dashboards are also the chief, oper uh, chief technical officer has paid a million pounds to a big tech company. Now there are a bunch of stressed, grumpy middle managers looking at this screen saying, how the hell does this do anything for me? <laughs> <laughs> and so um, the alternate version that you sketch out then is something where um, people might be building this um, smart system. Uh, I mean, for, for, for me anyway, that those two things feel almost incompatible, that actually what we signed up for with this idea of the smart city is exactly that version of the city which is about control and about overview and about systems. How can, and, and that the other version the human version, is the one which is not smart, which is the one that we have and actually the one that works quite well. So how do we bring technology in in a meaningful way um, into the human version of the smart city? I think that's what uh, that's the work that I've been trying to do with my colleagues as well, if, if I can reference some points from my talk as well. So, like I said, I start from a very grumpy place that, you know, decisions are being made by people who are obsessed by control and the business case, and they make the smart city about them. And in this equation, humans are the variables, and it's about taming the variables, mm -hmm. right, so that they fall into place. So the two questions that... Uh, uh, I was asking from a very subjective place is, okay, let's not jump to here's the alternative, but let's look at these two questions. The first one is that how does technology even start to become inclusive? What can we do? And the second thing is, assuming you've got that ideal technology, what, how do you sort of bridge that gap between here's the technology and here's the solution? No one's thinking about the process. So what I was talking about were some really small experiments and then testing them at scale. Do you want to hear? Please, please. Uh, yeah. So the first one, and, and I keep talking about me or my colleagues because I'm obsessed by this idea of one person as a unit of change. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first one was very self-referential, but it was my own uh, uh, research. I was at the music department in York, and I was creating biofeedback games. Uh, breath control biofeedback games. So I was looking at Eastern systems of breath control like pranayam, matching it with respiratory physiotherapy, going uh, then creating digital technology where you could effectively play a computer game with your breath. And what I found was that, um, and please feel free to jump in if I'm meandering. No, 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 this is, this yeah. is fascinating. So what I found was if I was in a white box, 
I could bring in six-year-olds, I could tell them what to do, and I could get them to conform, and I would get wonderful results. <laughs> but when I took my technology into a classroom, I saw all sorts of anxieties surface, which were the barriers. So, for example, the class teacher didn't want to be seen as uh, being uh, stupid by her students in case she made a mistake with the technology, which was the biggest barrier why no one would ever play a biofeedback game in a classroom. Mm -hmm. So what I did was uh, I moved away from uh, technology and tried to replicate the process in a very analog way. So uh, back then, mindfulness was not a buzzword. It was meditation. <laughs> so I ended up running meditation workshops in uh, uh, Japan and India and, and, and the UK. And it was really interesting because it was the same process. Uh, I was mirroring the process of my computer games, but it was only verbal instructions. And I found that for the uh, instructions to proceed, the, uh, to have the desired result, the entire pressure was on me. Mm -hmm. not on the recipient of those instructions. So uh, I had to be very careful in Japan to give really accurate instructions because the norm is, dis uh, is obedience. And they would say, follow whatever I was saying. So they would even keel over trying to breathe, <laughs> you know, if, if they thought that's what they had to do. Whereas in the UK, it was very, very transactional. Every step, I had to show them what's in it for them. Mm -hmm. And then they would commit to it. So the first lesson that I took away, you know, is why don't we apply that same logic model to how technology works? We sort of create this system. Let's use the dashboard as an example and a stressed out middle manager in a local authority. And we expect them to learn a whole bunch of new literacies and behaviors overnight so they can adapt to how technology works. It should be the other way around. So that was one of the variables we started to answer. What do you make of that? Yeah, um I, I mean, I, I also read your article where you explained these um, these different experiments that you ran in uh, in Japan and, and also here. And I, I was really struck by your observation that here it became uh, more difficult because there was an, a, a sort of um, cultural uh, coherence necessarily that you might find in Japan in the in the classrooms in the UK, um, and that actually any smart system. Uh, you know, which is often top down uh, and quite uh, one size fits all, um, needs to be accommodate, adapt itself to these um, to these differences. Um, how how do we how do we even begin to to um, I guess navigate those different cultures through technology? I'd like I'd like you to answer that question because yeah. I feel you are much more <laughs> in that world. Very often, I'm dragged back into the applied world yeah if, if yeah you know what that means. i mean it's a, well okay thank you uh, <laughs> I, so I'll, I'll i'll perhaps talk a little about an exhibition that we have on at the moment uh, here at the vna which is called the future starts here um and it's an exhibition about the future it's about technology design science um cities about uh you know, uh, um, living forever, the, the sort mm -hmm. of um, long view and, and really how can uh, these things, these, you know, whether they're products or systems, uh, um, what can they tell us about the world that's coming? What can they, what sort of, are they signals that we can use to see what sort of a world is coming next? Or at least what kind of a world the designers of those things want to create? Mm -hmm. um, and instead of giving the answers, we uh, structured the exhibition around questions. Um, and really that what that tends to do or what we hope it does is is to 
put the responsibility back on you. So rather than mm. us being this sort of uh, omnipotent, um, you know, knowledgeable future gazers that mm. somehow a, a museum could predict where we might go next, is, which is, of course, uh, impossible, mm. um, we wanted to use the objects, the things, as what we call evidence of the future. And then the visitors somehow need to form their own opinion about what kind of a future we're building, uh, is it a good one, a bad one, or something in between? Mm -hmm. How do you, what do you feel about some of these things which we're putting in front of you? So, for instance, a good, a good example is, um, say, uh, we have a paro, which is this uh, very um, cute robotic seal, which is used uh, often in, um, uh, you know, healthcare facilities and so on. In particular, with uh, for people with dementia, mm -hmm. um, and you can stroke it, and it will wiggle around and squeak, and it's uh, it's a great alleviator of, of anxiety. Mm. Um, developed in Japan, of course, mm. where they have a mm -hmm. um, shortage of carers because mm. of the rapidly aging society. Um, so, on the one hand, it's it's quite a sort of uh, it's a it's a beautiful thing, it's a cute thing, but it's also a slightly uh, depressing thing perhaps mm. the idea that we've outsourced our care our emotional mm. attention to a robot mm -hmm. um, that we would simply you know hand one over to uh, a, a person with dementia uh, you know perhaps leave the room is the is the uh, you know imagined scenario and that um, we're developing robots to to care for for other people so that so we, we ask questions around that thing mm. and, um, and we want people to come up with their own conclusion. Are we replacing um, mm -hmm. human care with, with uh, you know, um, artificial intelligence or are we creating new forms of care and that actually this is a, a complementary tool that can be used in, the, in a healthcare scenario? Um, mm -hmm. And so I guess to come back to your, to your point about how can we... Um, design for difference or does or um, I mean I, I think the whole message of our show is that um, the future will be plural that actually um, you might come away with a different version of this show and it's funny you know some of the reviews said oh it's extremely depressing <laughs> mm -hmm. and some people say thank god it's an optimistic show about the future so there's there's a big span of uh, of uh, responses that we're seeing to the same content. Uh, <laughs> Listen, I think that subjectivity is very important because you can't, for example, also uh, uh, create art because it has to solve a problem. But then uh, a little provocation <coughs> to you is that you put a lot of subjectivity and we assume that everyone is willing to critically engage with mm. that. But what is really happening is... Uh, decision makers, budget holders, senior management, they're being extremely reactionary. So I would much rather go and build a million seals and sell them at 99 pounds or whatever to make a profit than actually say, hold on a minute, there's a human element to this as well. So in addition to creating a damn good product that gives me a lot of profit, how do I ensure that the human element thrives? Mm, mm. Uh, and of course, it's, um, I mean, the... the the seal, to use this, uh, keep using this example, um, it's just been approved by the, um, for use in the NHS. Mm -hmm. uh, some, um, we went and visited a, a healthcare home in South London where they have about five of them. And it's a big deal mm -hmm. for them because they're about 5,000 pounds. They're not mm -hmm. 99. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so that's more or less, you know, one staff member for their yeah. annual budget. Um, and, and and it's very interesting to see how they're using it, and they're quite yeah. conscious of not overusing it. And they, they so they described, look, we have this sort of 
um, pinch point at around 3 p.m. where, mm. for some reason, uh, you know, the, really the anxiety kicks in and we, mm. we may not have enough people to, you know, be there for all of our residents. And that's where we b- roll out the paros. <laughs> Three o'clock, we hand them around. Um, and it allows us to, you know, focus on the bigger questions or the, or the other tasks rather than being, you know, completely um, absorbed or, or drawn into to I, one I particular I love that thing. example yeah. because uh, it, it, with my sort of making things work hat on, people, you, you're getting people in the healthcare system to sort of query the process. You're listening to a special episode of Thought Starters, a podcast for White City Place, recorded from Exhibition Road outside the Victorian Albert Museum, as part of the London Design Festival. In conversation are Rory Hyde, designer, curator, and author, and Abe Adhikari, founder of Digital Identities. So, so I'm just picking up a bit about your process, which sounds super interesting. Um, I mean, you described yourself as a digital uh, buzzword. <laughs> digital insert, insert buzzword, insert buzzword. Yeah, <laughs> Don't get my job title wrong. <laughs> but um, I have my own you have your own company. Yes. Right. And, and it's sort of a design consultancy slash systems. Oh, my God. Uh, I wish I knew how to de- uh, define yeah. that. That's, that's uh, one of the biggest problems I have. Um, uh, one way of describing it is... Um, I'm really interested in getting, we'll find a job title for it and a sort of (laughs) industry term, but I'm really interested in getting people to participate in the process of discovery Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then recognizing what is that impact and then learning how to scale that. Uh, I've done this with museums. I'll give you some examples. (laughs) Uh, Done this with uh, 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 cities and with corporates. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what that's what I do for a living. And increasingly what I've noticed is what we're really good at is uh, also highlighting a social impact that has a business case. Right. Yes. So yeah, now yeah, I'm yeah, in yeah. the business of nudging people and organizations to think about social impact and also prove to them that there is a vested interest in it for you because you can generate revenue. Yeah, 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 yeah. Please tell me if you have a word or a phrase to describe that and that's my new marketing strategy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, 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 I'll try it. I'll call it uh, design consultancy with the triple bottom line. Okay. Um, with a, so, so whether it's economic, social, environmental, uh, whatever you like. Oh, I like that. But yeah. um, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it sounds like a, a sort of critical um, spot to sit in, uh, and especially when it comes to cities. I mean, my background's architecture. I'm very much interested in how um, spaces can, whether that's a you know house or a mm-hmm. city itself, can shape behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, what are the clues that you can give uh, through mm-hmm. that space? But also, what's the range of possibilities that's allowable in yeah. those spaces? So that's what, and and really, uh, through my work in the museum, we're trying to. Um, I guess, you know, push on those edges of what is allowable yeah. in the in the museum. You know, the, you walk through the through the doors here, or, or the through the main entrance. You have to go upstairs through mm. an incredible um, ornate arch, um, through revolving doors. Have your bag checked. Yeah. Often buy a ticket. Absolutely. For a lot of for a lot of people, those five things are, yeah. are, are quite a big barrier to get past. And by the time you're through all of those things, you 
behave. <laughs> you know, there's a sort, sort yeah. of like uh, social conditioning that happens through yeah. that through that threshold. Um, when actually, uh, you, well, you you don't have to buy a ticket because the, the museum's free. Um, and so, so what happens when you reconsider that space of the galleries as a extension of the street, yeah. as an extension of the public realm? Um, and one of the, 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 you know, really that was the concept behind the new entrance. And we're sitting yep. here on Exhibition Road, right next to, I'm looking now at our new Exhibition Road entrance, which uh, instead of going up the stairs, you're on the same level. Um, you walk into a um, plaza and you're sort of already in, enveloped by the museum on three mm. sides. Mm. You then walk down the stairs, so that's mm. somehow you know, meant to give you that momentum to yeah. propel you through the doors. Glass doors, so you can see ex immediately where you're going rather mm -hmm. than needing to, you know, uh, again, jump through a um, threshold. Um, and from there, yeah, you're hopefully, you didn't even notice that you entered the museum. <laughs> I think that's the, lo the logic of, our, of the new entry, yeah. That's brilliant thinking. Mm -hmm. So, so to, to rephrase what I do, th there are people like you who are coming up with these fantastic ideas about access, but when they go through the control structure of an organization, very often they end up being something very different because they mm. will, uh, this is not about your entrance, but very often there will still be tendencies to install little measures that reinforce control. Mm -hmm. So I guess what we are trying to do is take your thinking, put it through the filter of an organization that wants to have control, but make sure as the end user, I also experience the entrance exactly as you visualized it. Mm -hmm. And we're doing this uh, in, in Germany. I'm working with a cultural institution. And they're very enlightened because they've realized we've got an amazing exhibition. We are free to the public. But now they've gradually realized that, hold on a minute, uh, the hard-to-reach communities, and I'd yeah. love to talk to you about that phrase, yeah, yeah, hard-to-reach. Yeah. For them to see a big glass facade and a big desk and one person is incredibly intimidating. Mm, mm, they mm. can't even bring themselves to ask the right questions to learn how to navigate the space. So let's look at that first. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's super interesting. I, I'm, and I mean, I'd be interested to, to get your thoughts on where this thinking comes from. I mean, it wasn't really that present when I studied architecture. But now through, you know, friends and colleagues working in what they call user experience. Mm. And really this is, um, you know, people who are employed by banks to reevaluate their websites and how many clicks does it take you in order to do what you want to do and how do you know what you want to do? And there was a sort of new literacy that grew up mm. around um, navigating uh, systems and interfaces and so on. And, and what we're seeing now, and perhaps it is, this is uh, what you do, uh, is to apply that to physical spaces, not just uh, digital spaces. Yeah. There's something you said that made me really happy, this idea of new literacies. So, you know, let's not make smart cities all about doom and gloom. Yes, the uh, the momentum currently, sadly, still is towards dashboards that can control behaviors. But I think we're also catching up where both service providers and service users are creating better digital literacies. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, service providers to say, okay, I really want this to work. And service users to say, hold on a minute, this is not working for me. Therefore, I have the agency to reject that smart city solution, which is a good thing that's happening. Um, it's interesting you mentioned working with museums. I'm interested in your uh, take on the use of digital in the museums. Um, it's something I get asked a lot about, and of course we have a big digital department who are um, very uh, good at you know in using it I think in in appropriate ways and not overusing it and so on but uh, it's one of those things which uh, again the 
people upstairs, the senior managers, <laughs> want to see yeah. a lot of. You know, we're doing an exhibition about the future, so naturally. We had to have an app, we were told, oh or we had to have some sort of, in, you know, thing that you could navigate with your phones or headphones or whatever it is. And I just said, uh, you know, pushed back completely and said, no, no, the, the exhibitions are a public space. You don't yeah. want to be distracted by something else. Yeah. You want to be standing there discussing with your friends or your family or having an argument with them about the questions we set them. So actually, paradoxically, um, I think our, the, the experience of our future show is the most low-tech of all That's our exhibitions. Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I love that. Uh, um, I think, so I'm a generalist, as you can imagine, uh, but what I really want people to invest in is discovery. So all of those questions, I think it's, it's still your story. I would love to see how you are connecting, creating that feedback loop. Mm, so mm. you've created this exhibition with, with a lot of ideas and let's say some assumptions as well. So is there a feedback loop that brings, uh, helps you sort of question those assumptions and the next iteration? You have more ideas and more assumptions. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, there's a small bit of feedback. I mean, I think we much of the feedback should be social, and we have lots of people mm -hmm. there who are trying to host those conversations and and you know help with you to navigate the interactive exhibits and so on. But at the very end, we have a touch screen with a series of questions, um, and it's it's been put together by YouGov, which is a polling mm -hmm. agency. Um, and it's 10 questions, and it will tell you what your attitude to the future is. So it then it assigns one of six categories. You're mm -hmm. either a, um, you know, a crazy optimist or a um, depressive, neg uh, you know, doomer, or so <laughs> and everything in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't mind me saying this, have you outsourced the most interesting, engaging <laughs> bit of your exhibition to a dashboard, <laughs> which is an opinion poll. Is, is well, you, you know, we get to, we, we worked with them, we commissioned them, um, we, we wanted to learn from their expertise and they're sharing all their data with us. Um, but, uh, yeah, we probably did. <laughs> but, but, you know, what I would like to bring back, back into this is, again, I would bring you back as that individual who's instigated this into the heart of the experiment as well. Uh, you might have read the example of the work we did with the museum curator in uh, Sweden. So every year we choose, we don't choose, we chase <laughs> for <laughs> museums to work with us. Mm. All museums have grand mission vision statements, okay? And what we're saying is, how do you turn that into something sustainable? So uh, uh, the Natural History Museum uh, in Stockholm, they wanted to talk about climate change. So the way we used... Um, digital was starting with one unit of change one curator every day when she would walk from the train station to the museum she would take one photograph which was a visual metaphor for change and just put that on instagram there was no sense of audience building but that was incredibly powerful because she could then go and speak back communicate to her team okay climate change attracts all the nut jobs and we'll get an angry mob but how about this here's my experiment can we agree to set X, Y, and Z boundaries for ourselves of how far we want to go when you want to talk about change. And that internal clarity was brilliant mm, because mm. it's on that basis they started discovering who else is willing to engage with us. So it's not a criticism of your project at all, but the fact of having a uh, tablet with a questionnaire is for the people who've already come to your exhibition mm, mm. and what I'm really interested in every sector that we work in is who else is willing to engage with you mm. so they built a community of 8,000 people 
And then eight months later, that became an urban gardening project that was opened up to 60,000 users, which is a sustainable project. Yeah, well, that is really exciting for me. So I'm yeah. just trying to uh, sort of clarify some of the variables of uh, what do I mean by discovery and why do I feel it's so important to focus on that one unit of change, mm -hmm. the one person who instigates the idea. That's a super interesting example. And I, I mean... Um I really like that your museum project ended up with something happening outside the museum, <laughs> a gardening project for 60,000 people. I mean, I presume there isn't a, a giant garden inside the museum, but it was somewhere else. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, it comes back to this, this point you, make, uh, you made earlier about um, hard to reach uh, mm. communities or people or visitors or um, whoever they are. Um, I mean, and really, the, for, you know, for us, that was the founding vision of the mm -hmm. VNA. So it's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, Henry Cole's vision, the, the creator, the first first director. Uh, he said, you know, this is for the working class. This is mm -hmm. for this is a place of, um, you know, social enlightenment, and that through exposure to these mm -hmm. things, you can improve yourself. This great great Victorian idealism, mm -hmm. um, and and what that meant was that it was well, first of all, had late opening hours. Mm -hmm. um, at the first. So if you were working during the day, you could mm -hmm. uh, actually physically get into the museum. Um, and because of that, it was also the first museum to have um, gas lighting mm -hmm. uh, and the first museum to have a cafe. You could come here, have dinner, and then go and look at the exhibits. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of a smart city, isn't it? That's Absolutely. using technology to expand access. Absolutely. <laughs> I was just going to say, those are museums at the forefront of technology. So to bring this back to smart cities, I think, even though I don't like the phrase hard to reach, I think museums have uh, can should be central to this narrative about smart cities because you have two skills. One is uh, the ability to engage the so-called hard to reach and the other one is this sense of fearlessness to talk about contentious issues mm, mm. and we need to have those conversations otherwise we'll keep creating these damn dashboards that nobody <laughs> wants and and we need that critical insight that was rory hyde designer curator and author and abai adhikari founder of digital identities this has been Thought Starters, recorded in the pod on Exhibition Road outside the Victoria and Albert Museum as part of the London Design Festival. Thought Starters is a DNN Co project for White City Place, produced by David Michel, recorded by Alex Port Felix, and edited by Sean Crook. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram at the handle at whitecityplace or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes, Acast, or Stitcher. Give us a rating, write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time.